Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is National Book Award winner Jessamyn Ward. She is here with us to talk about her first memoir. It's called Men We Reaped. It's just out from Bloomsbury, and we're delighted to have you here. It's good to be here. Good to see you again. In Men We Reaped, you say that writing this is the hardest thing you've ever done, and I want to talk about that just a little bit. Yes, it definitely is. It's the hardest thing that I've ever written. You know, the process of writing it was really difficult because I had to go back in time and in writing about the events, relive them in some respects, right? But I think that what made it even more difficult for me was that in my first draft, I was really only writing about the actual events. Like I wasn't, I wasn't sitting as the narrator in the present and looking at the past moment and attempting to make connections and to figure out why things happened or, you know, why people acted or reacted, you know, in the ways that they did. And so it took me a long time to revise this book because, you know, with the help of my editor, I had to go back into the book, really go through it very carefully and develop it and, de- and you know, and make those connections and develop those ideas and really provide some, like, narrative connective tissue for the for the reader so um so yeah so it was it was really difficult and and of course putting that narrative connective tissue into the book that was hard because i really had to engage the material in a way that i didn't when i was just saying this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened it sounds like one of the things that came out of the revision and, and the fine-tuning is the memoir structure mm-hmm. which goes forward and backward mm-hmm. same time and tell us a little bit about the two tracks and what you're covering in each of them. You know, I know when I set out to write the book, I knew that the structure was weird, but I was committed to making it work. And that took a lot of, that took a lot of revision too, right? The structure is, it's not chronological, right? So I begin with the last um, young man's death or life and death, right? The last young man that died. And then I work my way back in time so that my brother's death falls last in the book, even though he was the first of the young men to die because he died in the year 2000. And so in between these chapters about, you know, my friends and my brother and my cousin, so in between these chapters about the young men that died, there, there are chapters that move forward in time, basically from my parents meeting and then having me, um, and then through my childhood and up through my adolescence so that I am working my way backwards from the young, like through the young man's death, but then also forward through my life so that at the end, the narrative or the story meets in the middle with my brother's death when he's 19. And these five young men, this is really sort of the core of the story. There are five men who were not just part of your community where you grew up, but they're also part of your your intimate circle. Yes. And these are all five men who died very young, late teens, mm-hmm. early 20s, mm-hmm. in a way that is, as you portray it, fairly typical mm-hmm. of your community. Yes. At first, they seem random. You know, my brother was hit by a drunk driver. Another young man actually died by suicide. Another young man had a heart attack. You know, another young man was murdered. You know, so they died. Another young man died in a car accident. So they died in all these seemingly disparate ways. But I, you know, when I wrote the book and went back and, you know, and and wrote about the events, but then also tried to make these connections, I felt like, you know, what, for me, what tied them all together is that they seem to be the result of 
of living as a young black poor person in the South. All, all that that entails seemed to bear down in those moments and really facilitate their early deaths. So, you know, it was important to me when I went back in and tried to make those connections to like make that clear. And you write about Mississippi as, you know, you cite the statistics. It's the poorest state in the United States on like the United Nations Development Index, which basically tracks quality of life on a number of different scales. It's pretty much the dead end of yeah. America. Yeah, exactly. The book, before I began the book, I thought that there were more places where I would actually incorporate information like that, where I would use information like that. But once I began writing it, I sort of figured out that that wasn't my strength. You know, that it takes a lot of work for me to incorporate those numbers in, in meaningful ways. And for me, it seemed like what was easiest was that, was that it was easiest for me to tell, to really just tell stories, you know, because that's sort of what I'm better at. But it was important for me to use those numbers. You know, even being from Mississippi, we encounter statistics about, you know, we always, we joke about how we're always last and everything, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that it's it's different to like joke about it as a Mississippian, but then to actually see the numbers on the page. And I think that it's a nice shock for the reader, whether they're from, whether they're, uh, you know, a native Mississippian like me or someone who, you know, a New Yorker, you know, I mean, I just think that hopefully those numbers serve as a kind of punctuation, you know, and sort of punctuate the stories that I've that I've written in the book. Despite all those numbers and the hardships that they reveal, mm -hmm. you still are drawn back to, I mean, you've been out to college and grad school and a job in New York, mm -hmm. and you keep coming back, mm -hmm. and as you write, your parents kept coming, I mean, they made it out to California and then were drawn back to the same community that they grew up in. Mm -hmm. It's that sense of community, mm -hmm. it seems like, that keeps bringing you back into the fold. Exactly. It, you know, community is really, it's it's really important to me. And I think that it's one of the, th the things that I wanted to communicate earlier on in the book, right? That there is this really strong sense of community because everyone, like all these families that have been there have been there for generations and they're all very large extended families. And because they've been there for generations, there's been a lot, there's been a lot of intermarrying. So most of the families are related to each other in some kind of respect. I always, I always tell people that just just my mom's mom, so my maternal grandmother, just on that side of the family, there are over 200 of us like in, in that extended part of the family. So there really is this sense of, because the community is so tight-knit and, and it has such this history, it has such a history and, the, and because it's so, because family and community are so intertwined, it really does draw you back because it's, I think it's hard to find that elsewhere. I think that, that that having that sense was really important for me when I was when I was growing up. So that even with all of the hardships of growing up poor and black in Mississippi that that really meant something. Circling back to what we talked about at the beginning about this writing this being one of the hardest things you've ever done, mm -hmm. there's another point at which you write about a conversation that you had in your twenties mm -hmm. about your writing uh, when you would come back mm -hmm. and friends would ask, well, what are you doing these days? And you'd be, I'm a writer. And they'd talk about that. And you talk about how in your fiction, you describe it as like, as an author, I was a benevolent God. Mm -hmm. And you sort of refused to put your characters through mm -hmm. exactly the kinds of things about being poor and black in Mississippi mm -hmm. that you were, are confronting in this memoir. Mm -hmm. Part of what was going on is that is that I just loved my characters too much. 
um, especially what I was writing at the time was all about young black men. And I think that the two, the two main characters in the book, to me, really reflect, were really a reflection of my brother who'd been dead for maybe like four years by then, right, when I was writing this book. So I couldn't, I loved them maybe even more so because they were a reflection of him. So it was really hard for me in the story to, um, to let the, to give the story some, to let the story take on its own life and to let things happen to them and the kinds of things that, you know, that happened to my brother and happened to the other young men that I, that I'd grown up with. And, and I was, I was, you know, I was sparing the characters, but sort of like I had put a chokehold on the narrative. And so the story couldn't live on its own, really. I feel like that was a lesson that I learned when I wrote my first book. So that when I wrote Salvage the Bones, it was easier for me to uh, to acknowledge that that was something that I did. That was a pro- that was a problem. So so yeah. So that's a big lesson that I learned in salvage. And then e- of course even more so, you know, with the memoir, um, because you know because I feel like that's one of the demands of, of the the form, right? Is that you, but then with memoir, it, you know, I feel like it's a question of okay, I'm, I'm I'll tell. Well, for me it was I thought I'll tell the truth. How much of the truth? Like every page is a negotiation because you have to figure out. What it, you have to always think about what the ramifications of your words will be. And in Salvage the Bones, you know, you're putting your characters through Hurricane Katrina, mm-hmm. but even in, in the long build-up mm-hmm. before that, dealing with a portrayal of this poor community that they live in. And wondering, how far along in the process of writing Men We Reaped were you when Salvage won the National Book Award for, for Best Fiction? I was very... I may, I think I might have had a first draft done it made it easier for me i think to go well yes it did make it easier for me to to go back to men we reaped and then start on the long process of revision after that i mean it really helped that that i had something you know even if it was a bad rough first draft still it was something because you know winning something like that really places a lot of pressure on you it just puts it puts a different lens on your work right so yeah, so I was really grateful that I at least had a really rough first draft done. But but then I think because the book is a memoir, that even though I'd won the award and I w- had gone back and I was working on it, I didn't always have the award sort of in my head, bearing down on me, placing a certain pressure on me. I just didn't, I didn't think about it in the way that I think that that I see that now that I'm trying to work on a novel, you know, now I'm really thinking about the NBA, but before when I was working on the memoir, and I think it's because it's a different form too, that I wasn't really thinking about it. As you're talking about it now, are you noticing a difference? Because I remember two years ago, mm-hmm. before the National Book Award, it was very hard mm-hmm. for you to get any attention mm-hmm. for Salvage the Bones. Mm-hmm. And I'm imagining now that it's not quite so difficult. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the attention that I've received with men reaped has been really great and there has been a lot of it and i'm really thankful for it because you know as you know from our earlier conversation i've been in the position where people aren't paying attention to my work and they're not talking about it so it's really great to be in a be in a place where people are reading at what i've written and then also really emotional authentic responses to it one of the things that emerged or came out of your biography in the salvage the bone years is that the initial talk about how your mom worked as a maid and one of the white families that she worked for 
the man agreed to pay your private school tuition, and that really was what set you on the trajectory to being able to become a full-time writer you know, and get out of the, the poverty mm -hmm. you were in. Although that, I don't think that was ever necessarily presented as a pure Horatio Alger type story, even back then. Men We Reaped really shades the nuances of that story and points out that it's like, okay, great, I was given this wonderful opportunity. And at the same time, because you were the only black girl in your high school, you write about being exposed to flat out overt mm -hmm. racism. Of course, it was a really formative experience for me. It was a great opportunity for me to be able to go to that school. It was a great school. It was like academically demanding. There were classes that I could take there that I couldn't take at any other school on the coast, public or private. There was this culture in the school where everyone, it was expected that everyone that graduated would go to college. So there was an entire system in place to make that happen. It was great in really wonderful for me in, in certain respects, but then in other respects, and I write about it in the book, it was really difficult because because I was the only black girl in school for a long time, and because the majority of the kids that attended the school came from pretty well-off backgrounds, you know, and they were also white, the majority of them. And then, of course, then that colored all of our interactions, and I think I mean, high school is rough for every, everyone, you know, because teenagers are so self-involved. But I think that the, the facts of race and class really colored a lot of my interactions that I had with students at the school. You know, it was really difficult for me to write that chapter because I wanted to be clear in that chapter about the fact that I did have friends and I did have good times when I was in high school. But unfortunately, the bullying that I endured that had racist, not overtones, but that was racist and that was classist, that that, that colored everything else and that just permeated my entire high school career and really, think, influenced the ways that I thought when I went to college and then later on when I was out in the larger world really influenced the ways that I thought about race, I thought about class. Because your self-esteem was already in the crapper oh, yeah. <laughs> pretty much by the time that you got to high school. Yes. <laughs> which you write about just from growing up where you grew up and seeing the, what the world around you was like and what until this opportunity you could expect mm -hmm. it to be like. Mm -hmm. Your own self-esteem was shot, just basically felt like you were nothing and yeah. destined to be nothing. Yeah. The kids who treated me that way when I was in school, it's it's almost as, as if they were reinforcing what the world had already taught me or, or reinforcing what I had learned as a kid, right, about what it meant to be poor and black. But every time one of them called me a nigger or did something stupid like telling nigger jokes in front of me to taunt me or, you know, whatever they did, then they they were reinforcing that when I encountered people in the outside world that I would always be thought of as less because of who I was. My self-esteem was already pretty low because of what I'd learned as a kid and then here I went to high school and it just, it was worse. <laughs> you contrast the overt racism that you faced with what Joshua, your brother, was going through. A much more systemic, more subtle, but for all its subtlety, much more pervasive and enduring racism. That was one of the things that I realized while I was writing the book, you know, so for all my talk about how difficult it was and how I don't want to do it again, I do recognize the value of, of doing it because it made me realize things like that. You know, I thought I understood what it was to be discriminated against 
But then when I spoke with my brother and, and he was telling me about his experience, he was coming up against these ideas that are present in the South that are the results of like the, the history of, of racism and prejudice and of class distinctions. I mean, years and years where he's seeing what it means to be a black man in the South and how his opportunities are really diminished and limited and coming to conclusions about how, like what that meant for him. Therefore, what options he felt like he had in his life, you know, at 14 and then what he would have later. And I didn't realize this for a long time, I think, until I actually sat down, you know, to write the memoir and, and was forced to make those connections. And then suddenly it was clear to me how our experiences were the same, but then very, very different. Joshua died at 19 mm -hmm. because of the backwards structure of, of the deaths that you're writing about mm -hmm. and then the forward structure of your own life. You save that for the end, mm -hmm. the final part of the story, but you write about how we're never done with grief. And it seems like a you know, part of the saving for, of, of that to the end is because it's the hardest thing to confront, mm -hmm. but it's also the thing that 12, 13 years later is still not done for you. Yeah. And I don't think it'll ever be done for me. When I chose that structure for the book, it was an intuitive choice. I didn't, and I couldn't really figure out why I had to tell the story that way. I just knew that I had to tell the story that way. And it was something that I felt like it was a physical feeling. When I thought about trying to tell the story another way, I couldn't do it. I mean, I think that it'll never be done for me. And I and I think grief is something, the way that we encounter grief, there are these five steps. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the end where there's this like acceptance and resignation. And, and I think that part of what people think when they think of acceptance is they think, okay, you're over it. It's, it's, you're healed. It's done. And there's part of you that's still back on anger. Exactly. 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 And part of what I realized when I wrote the book is that it's never done. You're never healed because what you're doing is you're living with that loss every day. And what happens, or at least my understanding of what happens is that you just sort of get better at living with the loss, but you never resign yourself. It's never okay. That loss is never okay with you. And and that's that's the sticking point. And in the writing of this, how often along the way do you t tell yourself, I can't share this. Why am I trying to share this? Mm -hmm. This is too much. Yeah. Often. And I keep saying this, and I know it sounds sappy or corny when I say it, but I did. I cried every single day when I was working on this. It was either because I was writing about the event or I had reached a point where I'd had some sort of emotional breakthrough coming up with the like the narrative connective tissue in the book that I just kept feeling like something every day, like something broke. That's what that that's what that process was like for me. Having gone through that mm -hmm. and you mentioned that you're working on a novel now, do you feel like that experience or or in what ways has going through that experience sort of prepared you for writing the next project? I don't know yet. And the reason that I don't know yet is because I've been having a hard time getting into the novel that I'm writing. I've written a lot of bad beginnings and I've had to throw them away. So I'm not really far enough into the process yet, I think, where I can assess that, really, unfortunately. You know, you write about how out of all the conditions that you grew up in and that your family grew up in, things have gotten better for you. Mm -hmm. How much better do you think they'll be you know, even growing up before she becomes an adult for, for your daughter? I think that change is really slow, but I'm hoping that, you know, in writing this book and by contributing to this conversation and acknowledging that things are bad, that I've done my part to try, and, and I will keep doing my part, I feel like, through my writing, 
to try to make it so there will be significant changes and things will get much better by the time my daughter is older. Because I feel like we need to talk about these things and we need to be frank about these things because if we don't, things really don't change. Or they might change a little bit, but not enough to where my daughter is 16, 17. I won't have to have the kind of bone deep worry that I have about like the young people where I live now that they'll just that they'll die young they'll be exhibit in some of the, the self-destructive behavior that we did when we were younger hopefully with, with the work that I do that won't you know that won't be the case and what's the reaction been like back home because you were doing interviews to recreate and collate the impression of what had happened during those times. Everybody knew that you were working on mm -hmm, this. Mm -hmm. uh, and now that it's out, what's the, the reaction been like? The reaction has been mostly positive. Yeah, it's been mostly positive. I think that people are happy these stories are being told and that others are reading them. But, you know, there have been some negative reactions to the work, too. Um, and I think that part of that is because it's memoir, you know, and because it's creative nonfiction. And, you know, and I do tell the truth, and so I think that sometimes people would rather that these very private things, things that they consider very private, things hadn't been revealed or wouldn't talk about or these secrets. So I have run into some sort of negative feedback, at least that, but I'm committed to talking about those things and to bring them out in the open because if we don't talk about them, then I feel like you know, there's no there's no change. And having been through the memoir process once now, is it something that you would do again? No, no. <laughs> I mean, not now, right? Maybe in 20 years if I'm still alive, but. Right now, me at, 30, at, at 36, I would not, I don't want to write another book. I mean, I believe in the book. I love the book, you know, and, and, and in many ways, I think that, you know, that it's one of the, one of the best, most important things that I've ever written. Uh, but, but it was hard. Yeah, it was hard. It was really hard. <laughs> well, in the meantime, I'm sure that there is going to be plenty more great fiction to come. That will be fantastic. Yes. And we will look forward to that. Yes. I have been talking with Jessman Ward about her memoir, Men We Reaped. It's out from Bloomsbury. I'm Ron Hogan, and this has been Life Stories, and I hope you'll join us for another episode soon.